Good morning. We don't talk much about Noah. Um, partially, I think that's because our lectionary doesn't direct us towards the story. Um, it rarely comes up. In fact, this is really the first time that I've consciously heard it um, when I was reading through the lectionary uh, readings assigned for today. Um, so we don't... This is the first time I remember seeing this little piece of the Noah story. Um, and what a beautiful piece it is. The, the story of Noah and the ark is such a strange story. And Jimmy and I were talking between services about how strangely out of place it feels uh, in the book of Genesis. Uh, so it sort of turned into a Sunday school story, right? And a beautiful Sunday school story. The animals marching two by two up the ramp along with Noah and his kids and the rest of humanity and all the other animals getting wiped out. So in, in the reading that, we have, that the lectionary has chosen for us today, we're spared all of the sin that led up to this story that made God so angry, angry enough that God was willing to wipe out most of humanity with a flood. But we also don't get that fantastic story of Noah's calling and the building of the ark to God's very exacting specifications um, God sort of seems like an architect in that part, so many cubits by so many cubits. Um, or his gathering up of all the animals, pairing them up, herding them into the ark along with his wife and his sons, their wives, and then the 40 days of deluge, uh, riding out the storm until at last it abated. We, we don't get the story of his first sending out a raven, then sending out a dove who comes back with an olive branch in her mouth so that we know that there's dry land appearing somewhere. And then he sends the dove out again, and the dove doesn't come back. I've always wondered, where did the dove go? Perhaps it reappears in today's gospel. Consider that possibility. Um, so after a while, the waters subsided, and the ark came to ground on the top of Mount Ararat, and Noah and his family and all of the animals come out of the ark and begin to repopulate the land. So that's the story. It's an ancient story. It doesn't only appear in our Hebrew scriptures. Uh, the story of the flood and a family of survivors uh, giving earth a fresh start is a story that's also preserved and handed down in the Epic of Gilgamesh, which was a Babylonian myth, flood myth, uh, that has, is almost exactly parallel to our story of Noah and the ark. Um, but I believe that it's this little piece that we get today, which is the story after the story of the flood that is relevant and even vital to our Christian story, the story of how we live in the world today. 
This little piece of text that we hear today is the ending of the flood epic, and it is truly remarkable. We're a few short pages into the book of Genesis, and we get this mystical, mythical telling of how humanity came to be created by God, blessed, sometimes punished, humanity doing marvelous things, horrible things, always in relation with a God who not only created and rules the world, but loves the world and every creature in it. As the flood epic ends, an amazing thing happens. God has a change of heart. God saw that perhaps wiping out most of humanity and all the creatures of the earth, except for the couples on the ark, perhaps it wasn't such a good idea after all. So God made a covenant with Noah, and indeed with all living things on the earth, never to send another flood, never to wipe out all of creation, all of this created world that God has identified as good. God reminds me of a parent here. A parent telling her children, look, you messed up. I overreacted. I love you, and I promise you that even though I know you're going to mess up again, I will not freak out again. I'm the adult here, and I'll do my best not to ruin everything again. And just in case I forget that I've made this promise to you, I'm going to put a sticky note on the fridge to remind myself. Of course, in the story, there were no sticky notes. There was no fridge to stick them to. There was only the natural world, God's beautiful creation, which God made even more beautiful by adding a bow to it, a rainbow, to remind God's self that when it rains, no longer get carried away. And this covenant, this first covenant that we hear in the scriptures, I think is particularly beautiful because it's God's promise not only to humanity through Noah, but to all living beings on the earth. It's God's love letter to creation. In this short passage, by my count, God promises 11 times that he is making this covenant with every living creature and with the earth, and that God will protect them from destruction. The work that we do here at St. John's, spreading love throughout Jackson Hole and well beyond, making a difference in people's lives, covering this valley like that snow out there is covering it again today, covering this valley with love, is all based on our certainty that we and all people are God's beloved children. 
and that we have agency and that we have more than agency. We have a responsibility to do what we can with what we have to improve people's lives, to make people's lives better, to show kindness and compassion in real, tangible ways, to do our bit to help God's kingdom blossom on earth. It's good work. It's sound theology. In fact, it's the only theology that really makes much sense to me. But in today's reading, the reminder that God not only loves and wants the best for humanity, but also for the rest of the world, every living creature of all flesh, and the earth itself, is a message that warms my heart. I guess that's, frankly, because I am so much of this world. There's something about sunrises and sunsets and brilliant colors that delights me and feeds me in a way that I can't really explain other than to say it's undeniable. The cycles of the seasons are a wonder. A dry September and January don't worry me too much because I know that the snow will come. And if it doesn't, that's okay. It did. Will we have a big fire season this year? Who knows? What I do know is that if the forests burn, they will regrow. I've been fortunate enough to live here in this place long enough to understand. Much of the mule deer population and most of the antelopes in western Wyoming got wiped out last year in the biggest winter in memory. They will come back, I hope. And if they don't, it's not because God isn't protecting them. It's because we've developed most of their winter habitat and disrupted their migration patterns. I hope they'll come back. We've been taught that we humans are the crown of creation and that our survival is of the utmost importance. We've behaved as if the earth itself and every living creature of all flesh was put here exclusively for our use. The natural world has been reduced to resources. And the commodification of living things, plants, animals, the very earth itself, in the not-too-distant past, that attitude has also been extended to human beings as resources to be bought and sold. Industrialization and the Western culture's scientific way of manipulating the world for our own benefit can be blamed for our exploitation of God's creation. It's important to remember that our Judeo-Christian tradition is partially to blame for justifying this way of being in the world. Maybe it all began at the beginning the start of the story, our story, Genesis. After creating humans in the first creation story, God gives them dominion 
over the earth and all living things. And indeed, humanity has been able to control much of life on earth, but our ability to control nature has, over the course of the last few thousand years and at warp speed in the last couple hundred years, gone terribly, terribly wrong. We're living in a time of man-made ecological crisis, mostly because of our wrong-headed sense of what dominion means. But there's a second creation story in Genesis that comes right on the heels of that first one. In this story, God creates Adam out of the dust of the earth, breathes breath into him, and places him in a garden. The story says he places him there to till it and keep it. In other words, to nurture it, to help it flourish. Then, God's let, then God lets Adam name every li- living thing. He brings every animal before Adam and says, name this creature. And Adam names the creature. And naming is an intimate act of love. So we have dominion and control on the one hand, and we have love and nurture on the other. Two stories of how humanity became human within a story-telling breath of one another. Is this a mistake? Is this a contradiction in the story? I don't think so. I think it's a brilliant telling of the complex way that humanity lives within the world. Part of what we human beings, hairless apes, according to some, what we human beings can and must do is either grow or kill our food. We have to clothe ourselves. We have to build structures to protect ourselves from the environment. This is at a bare minimum of what it takes to live within the world. These days, our lives are much more complicated than that. And we have the capacity not only to meet our physical needs, but we can move around in ways unimaginable not that long ago. Airplanes, cars, buses, subways... SpaceX. We live in towns and cities that require complex infrastructures. We buy and build and sell things that not only fulfill our needs, but wildly surpass anything that could possibly pass for necessity. Our dominion over the earth and every living creature that is with us, our control of the earth has gotten out of control. I have a sense that now is the time before it's too late to try our best to balance our dominion with our nurture, with a large, loving measure of nurture for this earth, our island home. If we're to honor God's covenant with Noah by spreading God's love for the earth, 
we must start by living our lives in ways that conserve and protect all living beings. Where do we start? Well, we start where we live, right here at home. We can start very simply. It doesn't take grand gestures. We can start by limiting our use of one-use plastics. I read somewhere recently that billions, billions of plastic shopping sacks have not ended up in landfills because of the way we have changed our habits around how we carry our groceries home. We cannot drive when we don't need to. We can cut back on buying and eating meat from animals who've been raised in industrialized ways, which is ecologically de devastating and very inhumane. We can compost the organic waste from our kitchens. Now, it's not nearly as dirty and messy as you think it might be. In fact, if you go to the recycling center, they will give you a five-gallon bucket with a screw-on lid, so your garage won't smell any differently than it smells right now, whether that's good or bad. But it's, it's a very simple thing that we can do to put organic material back into the earth, keep it out of the landfills. We can keep driving that old car instead of buying a new one. And when we do need a new one, we can look at the sticker on the windshield and take into account how many miles per gallon it gets. Speaking of recycling, we can do it. <laughs> now here's something that caused a little bit of trauma in some of the people at 8 o'clock this morning when I suggested that we can learn to sew rather than throwing out clothes that need mending. Several people were traumatized by that idea <laughs> and said, no, 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 not me. So I thought, well, okay, cool. If you're going to be a real Jackson Hole native, there's duct tape. <laughs> and there's also now no-sew patches that are prettier than duct tape, I guess. I kind of prefer duct tape myself. But wait, don't throw out any clothing. Take it to browse and buy. It'll either be repurposed there or it will be recycled there. Jonathan Merritt wrote a beautiful little book called Green Like God, which has informed some of my reflections that I've been sharing with you today. His theology and mine differ um, a lot um, on many points, but we both have a strong sense of God's love for all of God's creation. He says, the Bible does not teach the sanctity of human life, but the sanctity of all life. Although plants and animals, from frogs to flowers, are not equivalent to human beings, they remain creations of a God who loves them and who has placed value on them. I don't think that God loves flowers and frogs, wild places or farms, the country or the city, 
any less than God loves people. I believe we can and must find ways to spread God's love to all of creation. Perhaps the next rainbow that graces the sky or the next snowstorm that graces this valley or the next scrawny moose in your yard eating your crabapple tree will remind you of God's great love for creation and God's promise to protect and preserve all of God's creation, maybe that will inspire you to find a real, simple, positive way of caring for God's creation and showing your love. And with that, amen.